On this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, it's the double T's. Hello Tasmania and hello Taranaki. We delve into New Plymouth's artisan scene, take a trip down the surf highway and discover the museums in Hawara. Across the ditch, with the bubble well and truly open, enjoy a taste of Tassie. Welcome back to Kiwi Tripsters. Buckle up and take off to spectacular destinations as we continue our journey and share the inside word on all things travel. Whether it's luxury travel or backpacking on a budget, whether it's cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an amazing travel experience. And now, over to your hosts, Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch. Welcome aboard Kiwi Tripsters. I'm Chris Lynch. I'm Mike Yardley. Good to be with you. Are you excited about quarantine-free travel to Australia, Chris? I most certainly am, but I'm going to wait a few more weeks before I feel confident. Mm -hmm. But as you say, we are showcasing the two T's on this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, Tasmania and Taranaki. Starting in this country and New Plymouth, Mike has stamped its mark on a very appealing small city with great gourmet producers. Let's start with the beverages and a new hero on the scene is Shining Peak. Absolutely, Chris. I believe you could dedicate an entire holiday in New Plymouth simply to eating and drinking because they've got so many dynamic producers. And a new star on the uh, parade route is Shining Peak Brewing. Uh, This is such a fantastic venue, fabulous beer garden courtyard. Their dark lager and pale ale is really good, but uh, you'll want to wrap your lips around the Raspberry Berliner Weisse. It's Mm. like summer in a glass, even in autumn. Uh, It also comes in a by the way, but it's um, a German, as the name would suggest, a German uh, brew, a refreshing sour wheat beer with a really zippy burst of bright raspberry flavour. It's fabulous. Now, Shining Peak, uh, the reason that people have sort of given them like hero worship status is for two reasons. They've revived the tradition of a local brewery playing a central role within a community. And walking the talk on that, every month they donate 5% of their beer revenue to uh, a local community project. And, I mean, that's no small beer. That does actually equate to around 5000 bucks they give away every month, which is very cool. Pretty nice. Now, why is Juno Gin such an industry leader? Yeah, if you like your craft gin, I'm sure you've heard of Juno. Uh, Joe and Dave James head up this incredible little craft brew, um, craft gin company, and they've scooped so many awards for their premium gin. Uh, They do seasonal releases, which are just magnificent. I was trying the autumn uh, 2020 seasonal gin a month or so ago, and it is so mellow and so fruity. You get hints of grapefruit and marmalade in the gin. Yum. And um, this husband and wife team, they are so enterprising. They've been at the forefront of trying to establish um, New Zealand's own commercial industry of juniper berry growing because at the moment all of our berries for gin uh, produced in this country come from the Northern Hemisphere, and Juno recently led the hunt for the most viable plants to propagate here, and they're doing amazing work with Massey University, all going to plan. The first seedlings are going to be planted uh, for our juniper berry growing industry later this year. Nice. Good luck to them. Now, New Plymouth also has a proud history of coffee roasters, doesn't it, Mike? They do. Um, A lot of people will have heard of Ozone Coffee Roasters. They're actually housed in the old DB factory, and they've gone global. They've got two London outlets, Ozone, 
Um, and alongside the artisan coffee, they do amazing hot chocolate, which also can be found on the shelves in London at Harrods Department Store. But another really cool little gem of a roaster in town that I came across uh, when I was uh, recently there is this place called Stock and Proof Coffee. And what makes them so exceptional is this is your ultimate neighbourhood coffee roastery and servery because it is um, housed in a garage. So the owners, um, they live in the house and the garage is where this this business um, is pumped out from. 40 Cutfield Road is the address and uh, yeah, their Nico Bland uh, coffee is their signature uh, brand. You'll definitely want to try that. Sounds very nice. Now, surely there's some chocolate in the mix to go with it too, Mike. Oh, there's got to be, yeah. And you've got to go to Giles Chocolatier. This is where Gavin Giles creates the most incredible handmade treats. Um, From the traditional to the unusual, I really liked his pineapple cashew chocolate. That is such a winner. Um, Nice. Pineapple cashew, yeah. I was going to say it tastes nice, but it, it sounds nice. It is so yummy. He does lots of collabs. So as an example... Um, he's done a deal with Juno Gin, so you can get Juno Gin chocolate. Um, with Egmont Honey, they've got together and created Manuka Honey chocolate, which is kind of like Caramello. It is just gorgeous. And the really cool thing about Gavin's shop is that he's based uh, in what was actually a butcher's shop for his grandmother's family a century ago. Are there tours that thread this artisan experience all together? Yeah, there are some very good options, actually. There's a company called Taste and Tales, which Kathy Thurston heads up, and she has laced together a whole stack of producer tours which take you behind the scenes, so you will meet the makers, like, you know, Gavin at the Chocolatier place. Mm. Um, you can taste their goodies. It's all very leisurely paced over the course of a few hours. And there's actually eight different trails to choose from, which just illustrates what a powerhouse New Plymouth is when it comes to artisan food and beverage offerings. Where's a good place to stay, Mike? I love the Devon Hotel, which is part of the Heritage Hotel Group Mm. uh, in New Plymouth. Beautifully furnished, great artworks, cool stuff, but it's the restaurant, Chris, that's the star feature. Now, obviously in the COVID age, buffets have been a bit of a hard sell for some people, Mm. but I reckon Taranaki could well be home to one of New Zealand's absolute best buffet experiences because at the Devon Hotel you will find Marbles Buffet Restaurant and you've got to book in advance. This place is so popular. Every night they will roll out 18 different hot dishes and 18 different desserts. The seafood section is just extraordinary. Oysters, shrimps, crabs, mussels, you name it. If it's in the ocean, it'll be on your plate. Uh, But definitely book ahead. You're with Kiwi Tripsters. Now, when you've had your fill of New Plymouth, South Taranaki is chocker with attractions. Now, Mike, did you drive the Surf Highway? I love the Surf Highway, Chris. Probably one of New Zealand's great short drives. So it's about 90 minutes uh, from New Plymouth down to Manaya along the coastline. But it's a banger of a drive, uh, the glittering Highway 45, because there are such... Um, a great selection of sweet and salty villages, places like Oakura and Opanaki, uh, as I say, all the way down to Manaya, where you find Yarrow's Bakery and the most amazing bakery. Um, soak up the surf breaks at places like Kumara Patch and Fitzroy Beach. In Opanaki, if you like theatres, you've got to check out Everybody's Theatre. 
theatre. This is a century-old theatre, uh, very much powered by volunteers. It's been fully restored to the point where a lot of the seats in the theatre have been uh, restored. So it's the original seats of the cinema. Um, Another really cool site along the way, by the way, you can see the rusted wreck of the SS Gearlock, which ran aground on the reef just off the coast in the 1800s. No one lost their lives, but it's a a pretty striking sight to see that rusting hulk of a thing uh, jutting out from the water. What about the gorgeous Cape Ebnont uh, lighthouse? Yeah, this is such a stunning landmark. It um, is sort of creamy coloured, so it's very graceful. And if you're into your photography, you can get some really cool angles of the lighthouse where you've got the mountain behind you and the lighthouse, you know, just in front of the of Mount Taranaki. So, yeah, um, beautiful landmark. It was actually first installed, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, Mana Island uh, before it was taken to the Cape, which is very much the westernmost point of Taranaki. The scenery around that coastline, though, is just melt in your mouth. And what I love about the topography is you can see all of the um, small rounded hills um, sort of fanning out from Mount Taranaki closer to the coast. And these were all formed by ancient lahars flowing from that mountain. Pretty amazing when you when you can think about that history. Now, what characters did you meet in South Taranaki? Because I know there are quite a few. Oh, there are. A must is meeting up with a guy called Steve Manning. He is the local leathercraft legend. And if you think, oh, really? Leathercraft? This guy has worked on every imaginable New Zealand shot movie of note. All of the Hobbit movies. All of the rings. Spartacus, The Last Samurai. Um, Hollywood just love him. He is considered like the master um, leather worker. And yeah, his artistry is incredible. So when you go into his workshop, which is on the main street in Rahoto, which is just north of Opanaki, um, the workshop sort of doubles as like a mini museum. Lots of film set memorabilia, amazing character costumes, like the sort of gear that he made for Gandalf. And while I was chatting away to Steve, who is a great storyteller, and oh my God, the stories he can tell about the film stars. <laughs> but as I was chatting to him, locals will, you know, pop in and drop off a like a leather satchel that they need a buckle repaired on. And it's just so cool. He's an absolute essential highlight on the surf highway. Just contrasts from Hollywood magic to doing totally. his day job. Good on yeah. him. Now, what's the hot ticket in Hawara? The Tafiti Museum, I would say, is the must here. Um, now, Nigel Ogle, he is the powerhouse behind this private museum, which is a national treasure. It's been 35 years in the making, this museum, and it's still growing. And I learned more about the New Zealand wars at Nigel's museum than I ever did at school. <laughs> but it's not just the, um, the static displays as such. It's got its own bush railway and a novelty river boat ride, which transports you back to Taranaki life in the 1820s and 30s. It's called Traders and Whalers, the boat ride. Weta Workshop were actually deployed by Nigel to do a lot of the wizardry, um, the the bells and whistles and high-tech sort of um, special effects. Um, And it's very much modelled on Disneyland's It's a Small World ride. So when you do it and you think, hold on, am I in Walt Disney's town? Um, It is actually really similar. But I actually think because it's um, incorporating all of this New Zealand history, it actually packs a much bigger punch. Mike, what about the Elvis Museum? Wow. If you think (laughs) Nigel's creations have to be seen to be believed, Kevin Wolsey's grotto, his Elvis Museum, will absolutely bowl you over. It's another do not miss in Hawara. And Kevin, who's also known as KD, said to me that 
90% of people, when they walk into the museum, they'll say, oh, my God, to which, of course, Katie says, no, Elvis. Um, Mm -hmm. His garage is just a shrine in Aladdin's cave of the most humongous, stunningly furnished uh, galleries of Elvis paraphernalia. He's got over 10,000 items of Elvis loot in his collection. Good on him. Mugs, glasses, cufflinks, ties, album covers, blingy jackets, collectibles, you name it. I had to pick up my jaw from the floor. Um, (laughs) And Elvis fan clubs consider it as one of the greatest collector museums on, on the planet. He's been collecting since he was 12. Um, and the really cool thing is, and Kevin said, um, showed me some photos of this. When he was a kid, as a 12-year-old, he actually had a pen pal in Memphis, right, called Roy, um, who would send Kevin photos of Elvis just doing his thing as an everyday guy in Memphis. So it was like having a paparazzi pen pal. So he's got photos of Elvis out and about in Memphis on his garage wall that probably no one else has. Well, it was probably of. Elvis, you know. It was probably Elvis who he was speaking to. <laughs> exactly. Any other tips, Mike? I love the Hawara water tower. And in fact, Hawara is such a great New Zealand town. The thing about the tower, when they added red neon lights to the top of it about 90 years ago, it actually became New Zealand's tallest lighthouse. Um, and there's so much cool history with this tower. When um, they had just finished building it, an earthquake struck and it listed like the Ooh. leaning tower of Pisa. And this was built as a firefighting um storage, you know, for water. Um, So thankfully, when they were filling the tanks with the water, they were able to correct the leaning tower of Hawara, although today it still leans on an angle of about three inches. Very nice views at the top, by the way. I'll just stand outside and look. Coming up, we swap Taranaki for Tasmania as we start heading back across the ditch. Now, one of the silver linings to the age of COVID, I suppose, is the launch of new air services, like the recent opening of direct services between New Zealand and Tasmania. Mike, I know you're a big fan of Tassie, so let's start with the likes of, say, Hobart. I've heard some people likened it to Dunedin or even Wellington, which is odd because they're quite different cities. What do you reckon they mean by that? Probably the fact that it's... um Partly flat and partly hilly, uh, right. and got a harbour. <laughs> so they would be the common denominators. But I really do like Hobart because it has the same sort of relaxed tempo that you would associate with Dunedin. Its key sites and attractions are sprinkled around the waterfront, a bit like Wellington. Um, and its history goes back in terms of European history to 1804. So there is a lot of history to lap up. So strap on your walking shoes with a Hobart historic tour, which is a really nice walkabout. And it was actually in Hobart that I learned that Abel Tasman was the first European to discover Tasmania on his epic voyage from Indonesia. But the remarkable thing, Chris, is he completely missed discovering mainland Australia. So he, he identified Tasmania but missed the big boy next door. (laughs) <laughs> we'll, let him, we'll let him off with that. Where's the best, some of the, the I suppose, the quintessential flavours of Hobart? Salamanca Market is really hard to eclipse because it is just monstrous. And this is down on the waterfront. It's framed by 
elegant Georgian sandstone buildings that began life to service the whaling trade, the grain and timber industries. So yeah, today Salamanca is synonymous with fresh market produce, gourmet food, craft stalls, cafes, atmospheric pubs. And every Saturday, Salamanca still plays host to Australia's largest outdoor market. How large? Three thousand traders nice so that's a lot of grazing to do at the salamanca market um and this really is a great um antidote to the monotony of shopping malls you've got to go to the salamanca market sounds very nice now what about hobart's waterfront a dizzying array of dining options there mike there sure are i went to the drunken admiral restaurant i suppose you could say chris i dropped anchor at the drunken admiral yes did you get drunk I had a few, okay, but I was still semi-respectable. Good. Um, good. Very nautical-themed interior, the Drunken Admiral Restaurant. Kids love that place, by the way. A short f- walk further around the shoreline will bring you to a place called Battery Point, which is this drop-dead gorgeous historic neighbourhood, so lots of colonial houses, galleries and craft boutiques. Nice. And then further around from there is um, Sandy Bay, and a Hobart landmark, which I used to think was a really cool landmark when I was a kid, Rest Point Casino. And the amazing thing is, it's celebrating its 50th anniversary next year, which when you look at this building, it was so futuristic when it was built um, back in 1973. It's amazing to think it's 50 years old. But the reason you'll want to go there is to have Hobart's best high tea served um, every Friday afternoon from the lofty perch of their revolving restaurant. And if you do have a head for heights, the pinnacle of Hobart's backdrop, Mount Wellington, provides sprawling panoramic views right across southern Tasmania. Mike, art buffs rave about the museum Mona. Man, you have seen nothing quite like Mona. Um, The Museum of Old and New Art. It is the Southern Hemisphere's largest private gallery. It is somewhat subterranean, the way it's been built, but it is just the most extraordinary storehouse of eye-popping eccentric art. A decade old, um, Mona was the brainchild of a Tasmania who actually made a fortune fine-tuning algorithms to beat bookies and casinos at their own game. Well, that <laughs> but, sounds good. Yeah. I, need, I need him. <laughs> yes, exactly. Don't we all need one like that? Um, I have seen Mona described as the subversive adult Disneyland and when you do enter Mona, you do, do feel like you're falling down a rabbit hole because you are led underground by about 17 metres into this cave-like space, Ooh. which just brims with the most extraordinary art objects, loosely themed around sex, evolution, and death. Okay. Uh, you better give me some examples now. Well, one of, of the more tasteful ones, <laughs> this gigantic installation called Bitfall, and it's a rain-painting machine. Um, a German guy, Julius Pop. I do like that name, Julius Pop. It's a good name. Yeah. yeah. Um, he created this, and it's a multi-million dollar contraption. So it's got 128 computer-controlled nozzles, and they release cascading droplets in the shape of trending phrases, uh, which are harvested daily from news websites. So you might get, like at the moment, um, Chauvin or George Floyd or, you know. Um, so it's very now, but it's all done in this um, sort of computerised rain painting machine. Very cool. Now, that's the more tasteful one. Oh, no. So that lulled me into a sense of complacency, Chris. And as I walked on, I was thinking, how shockable can this place really be? I was confronted by a chocolate sculpture yes. of the remains of a Chechen suicide bomber. What? 
Okay. Yes. Stephen Chenabrock's cast of a disemboweled suicide bomber rendered in chocolate, as you do. Okay. Uh, one level up, a whole wall was lined with 100 porcelain moulds of female genitalia, while another wall boasted a gigantic image of a man engaged in bestiality. What? And this is art? This is art, darling. Okay. It's not hard to see why some art snobs sniff at Mona's obsession with smut. It uh, certainly is a museum that busts boundaries, but it is strangely mm. addictive nevertheless, Chris. Okay. Well, art is conversation. <laughs> I guess I'll leave it there. Uh, what about uh, the Tassie beer? Yeah, you'll be needing a beer after Mona. Yeah. Uh, so or further, <laughs> Yes, exactly. Uh, head out to Cascade Brewery, which is uh, about 10, 15 minutes from the city centre of Hobart. It is Australia's oldest operating brewery. I think this place is haunted. There is, there is a sense of something within that brewery. Uh, but they've been producing prized ale since 1832. And before you leave Hobart, take a short drive to Richmond, which I think could well be Tasmania's prettiest village. It's frozen in time Georgian, uh, this village of Richmond. It features Australia's oldest jail and the truly divine, storybook beautiful Richmond Bridge, which was built in 1825. In celebration of the Tasman bubble, let's continue talking about the taste of Tasmania. Uh, what about Port Arthur, which is probably famous for all the wrong reasons? Yes, well, of course, in more recent years, people will uh, know it as uh, the site of that horrendous massacre. Um, there is a lot of drama and history to reflect on at Port Arthur. Mm. No site in Australia brings to life the convict's uh, story quite like the penal colony of Port Arthur. It's a World Heritage Site. It's about an hour from Hobart. It certainly has seen more than its fair share of tragedy with that, yeah, that senseless massacre in 1986. Um, the penal station itself was established in 1830 uh, and they were using convict labour for work programmes and then it was expanded to become a punishment station. So this is where Australia's worst recidivist offenders were dispatched for correction and it later housed the mentally ill as well. How big was it? Monstrous. By yeah. 1840, there were already 2,000 convicts there. Soldiers and staff lived on site, uh, so you can see their quarters as well. And it became, yeah, this hive of prisoner powered industry. They produced bricks there, they worked stone, they made furniture, even boats uh, for the free settlers to Tasmania. The settlement closed in 1877, but the aura of convict heritage uh, endures, and Port Arthur remains a very popular visitor drawcard. So you're wanting to probably set aside half a day to explore the buildings, hear the stories, absorb the sad and the haunted atmosphere, um, and be sure to admire the iconic sandstone church, which at its peak hosted up to 1,100 convicts. That's how big this church was, wow. because... Um, it was compulsory for them to attend Sunday services, these bad boys. Um, it's a haunted place. Probably is. What about Launceston? Yes. Lonnie, as the locals call it, is like the northern gateway to Tasmania. Hobart's obviously the big, bigger city. Lonnie is second. Um, beautiful, beautiful place. Grand old stone buildings, a fantastic uh, waterfront precinct. And the top drawer is a natural attraction, Cataract Gorge, which is... Absolutely spectacular. Just minutes from the heart of town. Um, just 
truly beautiful. You'll just go crazy with your Instagram there. And an hour from Launceston, um, another place uh, that has been newsworthy in recent years that you will probably know this name, Beaconsfield Mine, uh, and also the uh, the Tamar Valley, if you're into your wines, fabulous cool climate wines, the Tamar Valley. Okay, so is the, the Beaconsfield Mine centre worth yeah. a bit of a look in? Definitely is, yeah. They've got lots of heritage exhibits from gold mining's heyday, but what I enjoyed the most is the superb display about the 2006 uh, mine rescue. Um, it was, I remember it was huge news in New Zealand. We yeah, were following, I yeah, following the coverage of trying to get these trapped miners out of there. And in this display that sort of pays tribute to the heroic rescue effort, the two kilometre long scarf. So this was a scarf that was knitted by the community as a good luck charm for those trapped miners. A two kilometre long oh, scarf, isn't that amazing? Long scarf. What yeah. makes Cradle Mountain, by the way, so six? I mean, perfect, isn't it? Spectacular. It is the shape of it, Chris, which is sort of otherworldly. It sort of curves like the uh, slither of a new moon. Mm. Um, it is Tasmania's iconic landmark. It's nestled below the uh, Lake Dove. And a bit like our Lake Matheson in New Zealand, you'll get the most sublime reflections of the mountain in the water. Um, it's a ravishing setting, beautiful luxury lodge there, Cradle Mountain Lodge. Uh, and the ancient rainforest is absolutely primed with terrific bushwalks, a bucket load of wildlife. I nearly stood on a wombat Ooh. moments after arriving there, by the way. They're very uh, fearless sort of mm. creatures, just waddling around looking for a feed and... Um, Along comes a New Zealand tourist and nearly takes them out. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you normally. Uh, tell us about the Bay of Fires. This, I think, is sort of like Martian-coloured rocks interfacing with perfect white sand on a coastline. It's really dramatic, mm. beautifully theatrical. So this stretches along the east coast of Tasmania, north of um, Hobart, and there's dozens and dozens of these beaches in the Bay of Fires. So, yeah, you have this powdered white sand, crystal clear water, and then these big, gnarly red, fiery red granite boulders sort of tossed around the shoreline, a bit like our Mordaki boulders. It's like, you know, a giant has dropped them on the beach. Um, the pick of the bunch of those beaches, by the way, in my book is Binalong Bay, which would have to rate as one of the most radiant beaches I have seen anywhere in the world. But you also highly recommend Wineglass Bay as well. Absolutely, yeah. This is just a bit further down the east coast um, in the Freshenet uh, or Freshenet National Park. Uh, the reason that's called Wineglass Bay is not because it's full of um, alcoholics, but the bay is just so perfectly formed in the shape of a wine glass. It's, you know, sort of semicircular. Um and it's very remote. Or so it's your alcohol goggles on. <laughs> well, it could be that too. Everything yeah. you see is a wine glass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, really remote, really romantic, and the bay is home to lots of playful dolphins. It's well worth seeing. Well, that's it for now. Be sure to like us on our Facebook page, and our show notes are available on the website kiwitripsters.co.nz. We always love you rating and reviewing Kiwi Tripsters on the podcast service of your choice. Yeah. So make sure you do that. And we hope to catch you again in a couple of weeks' time. Take care. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? 
then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. Thank you.